I'm recording now. What? Yeah. <sighs> and just like normal, I'm going to count this motherfucker down. Three, uh, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. It's an introspective on retrospectives. Uh, every week we break down a movie, piece of music, TV show, anime, some form of media uh, that the other person hasn't seen, and we just break it down first some things and second some things. Yep, that is what the show is. Okay. Uh, probably. It was great. Yeah, thanks. It's very had a very loose, relaxed uh, uh, jam feel to it. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I like to do. It was like the the fish or Grateful Dead of podcast intros. It's <laughs> like okay, there's clearly ability on display here. I don't know where this is going, but I'm just gonna stick with it. I mean, that's why people listen. It's for the jam band aspect of our podcasting. That's it. That's that's why I'm here. Uh, I mean, there's nothing else to be here for. Wait a second. I'm Tari J. Miller. I'm Lex Michael. Uh, And welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about Blue Velvet, written and directed by David Lynch. This is technically my first David Lynch movie. That was going to be my first question for you, is what your level of exposure to Lynch was before I said, Tari, this week you're watching Blue Velvet. Right. Uh, Which is was zero, and now it is one. Okay, but you said technically, so where's the gray area there? I don't remember if I've ever seen any other David Lynch, but I remember having a conversation that I've never seen David Lynch and everyone's jaws dropping. Okay. So it was mostly that. So you're leaving room for a margin of error. Right. Okay. I don't want someone in the comments to be like, yo, son, you and I watched insert David Lynch movie together in college. We watched Inland Empire every night for a year. Is that a David Lynch thing? Oh man, that's quite a David Lynch thing. Yeah. So I want to. Okay. So <laughs> I want to. I want to talk to you a little bit about about Lynch and why I wanted you to watch this and why I'm going to probably continue to make you watch David Lynch works throughout. Uh, however long this podcast runs, we'll clear all of it eventually. Oh yeah. So as you may or may not know, right now uh, Twin Peaks is airing on Showtime. After 25 years, David Lynch and Mark Frost got together and and have relaunched it as this massive 18-hour story split into parts. Uh, as of this recording, we're most of the way through. There are three weeks, four hours left. Uh, Twin Peaks remains as it was in its original incarnation, probably the most your mileage may vary show that there is, but is uh, in any incarnation, probably my favorite TV show that has ever been made. One of my favorite things that I think has been made by people. But what I think is really cool about this new incarnation of Twin Peaks is that it feels the further into it that we get, it feels very much not just like a proper continuation of the original series, but also this culmination of everything that Lynch has been doing uh, all the way uh, back to Eraserhead, his first feature. And so being that I wanted to sit you down and make you watch Lynch, I figured a good starting place would be Blue Velvet, because I think most people, especially if you're not familiar with the way Lynch tells stories, Eraserhead might might scare you off. Like, I don't find Eraserhead to be anywhere near as impenetrable as a lot of people do. I think, like much of David Lynch's work, when you really break down his, the, like what the, the themes and the symbolism represents, a lot of it is far more straightforward than it seems at first glance. Mm-hmm. But I figure Blue Velvet is a good, uh, slightly more accessible jumping in point especially because with Blue Velvet, it's it's his fourth feature. But that's the one where you really start to see all of so many elements that would carry through the rest of his work uh, begin. And it's a, it's, a first, it's a first for a lot of significant collaborations right. in his career. Uh, Laura Dern being a big one, uh, mm-hmm. composer Angelo Badalamente being another one. So I figure, yeah, Blue Velvet, good, good way in. As accessible, I think, as a lot of... Lynch's movies get. Okay. So what is it specifically about his style that really resonates with you? So I feel like more than any other filmic storyteller, certainly that I can think of, David Lynch tells stories in a way that 
feel like you're inhabiting a dream as you watch it. And okay. he's very much about dreams and dream logic and tone and mood more so than he is even uh, about story. And I think you watch certain like lost highway or, or inland empire, which I mentioned, I think it's very clear that he's interested in things, uh, not that he's not interested in story, but there are a lot of things on his list, I think, that come first. Okay. Um, but it's it's the way it it's the way all of the elements that he presents in a in a scene and in a given movie or in episodes of TV that he's done, where it really does feel like you're walking through either a, a euphoric ethereal dream or also just as commonly, if not more so, one of the scariest nightmares you've ever had. <laughs> and I love the way that he, I mean, like we'll talk about uh, the character of Frank Booth in detail. And Frank Booth, I think is like the, the OG version of like a, the Lynch villain, which really does seem very truly monstrous. And often uh, his villains tend to display the most ugly aspects of toxic masculinity. And I think, Two, that's something you see in a lot of his work. You see these themes of misogyny and uh, the way society has dehumanized women and, you know, people that are victims of trauma, people that survive trauma, people that don't survive trauma. And he's always very, it's clear to me, he's always been very fascinated with these ideas. And I think a lot of people don't quite know what to do with them as depicted because as you see just in Blue Velvet, it's very jarring. Right. There are there are some sequences that are so jarring in the way that they're played that it almost, if you aren't keyed into what his intentions are, feel almost exploitative in a way that is uh, could be uh, upsetting. And I would understand if if a viewer who was not prepared found themselves very, like caught off guard in a very negative way. But I think you have to consider what his intentions are, and I think his intentions are very. Altruistic is not the right word, but I think his intentions are good ones. Right. I think he's depicting this stuff in a very ugly way because the reality of it is incredibly ugly. It is incredibly insidious. It is incredibly destructive, and it is violent. And so many of his scenes and his characters feel incredibly visceral and violent without actually depicting direct violence. Right. And then, of course, when you have direct violence depicted, it, it is that much uglier. And yet at the same time, the entire thing, like I said, feels like you're walking through a dream, which I find so like endlessly gripping. Okay. Um, that's interesting. I, I understand the dream aspect, especially uh, in this, this movie being my only example so far. Um, I'm going to sit you down and make you watch a razor head at some point. <laughs> like once you get, once you get used to uh, some of the slightly more accessible, I don't think anything he's made is necessarily commercial, but the closer to what I think most people are used to watching, then we'll go backwards and I'll show you Eraserhead. Because Eraserhead is fantastic. And Eraserhead 2, that and Blue Velvet, I think are very much the two movies that everything else that he's done since has has grown from. I think too, even even again, uh, as recently as the new Twin Peaks, there are elements that he's playing with that he's been playing with his entire career and he's folding a lot of these concepts back in on on themselves but two I think it's worth mentioning Eraserhead was his first feature and then he was hired to direct The Elephant Man which got him his first Academy Award nomination for Best Director Blue Velvet got him his second and then after he did Elephant Man he was offered Return of the Jedi really yes and turned it down uh, which is a shame because it it really it deprived us all uh, for the rest of our lives of a like a Frank Booth Ewok, which I think would have been fantastic. Like Wicket just trying to like bang the crap out of Leia's hat, <laughs> like that hat that she hands him, and he just like right. puffs some amyl nitrate and tries to like fuck the hat. Um, but it might what, have been slightly left of what they were going <laughs> for. But actually, he turned it down, and what he went to do instead was he made a movie out of Frank Herbert's. Dune, which was his first collaboration with Kyle MacLachlan, and that's probably the primary reason that his Dune is notable. Yeah. It was not well-received. It was not a financial success. It's a bit of a tough watch, but that was his first collaboration with MacLachlan, MacLachlan's first credit, Blue Velvet being only his second credit. Got it. And the two of them would obviously go on to be great collaborators. They worked together on on Twin Peaks, where Kyle MacLachlan played Dale Cooper. Um but that's everything leading up to 
Blue Velvet. And then Lynch talks about when he was developing the movie, it started, he didn't have this fully formed idea. It came to him more or less in pieces. Right. It started with the Bobby Vinton song, which uh, is the title song, which Isabella yes. Rossellini sings in the movie, um, and the images that it would conjure for him. And he had this idea, which is you see depicted in the movie, worth mentioning that a lot of people have picked up on how Kyle MacLachlan's character, Jeffrey Beaumont, is more or less a Lynch surrogate in the movie is he more or less not okay. direct, it's not it's not completely autobiographical although there are autobiographical elements to the movie interesting um there are towns that lynch grew up in that are similar to the town of lumberton yeah. also worth mentioning lumber and lumber yards is a thing that pops up in twin peaks later so that's a thread that runs from one to the other okay um <laughs> but Lynch talked about some of the imagery that this song would evoke for him. And one of the images that he had was hiding out and watching a woman overnight in her room. And in the process of watching a woman overnight in her room, a clue to a mystery would present itself. Mm-hmm. And it would essentially open a door to a different world. And by that same token, he had this image of the severed ear that you see at the beginning with the ants yeah. going at it. Um, and the ear, the camera's zooming into the ear and he's like the ear, because you know, it's a, it's a hole, it's an entryway and like, it's right. It's adjacent to the brain. Okay. And you see too, when the movie begins, when we hit the grass and we see that severed ear the camera goes into the ear and we're in now this other world. And I don't know if you picked up on this the first time you watched it. I probably didn't pick up on this the very first time I watched it. I didn't think too much about it. But the camera doesn't come out of an ear again until the very last scene where Jeffrey's lounging on that chair and the camera pulls out of his ear. And suddenly we're back in a world that is a little more normal. Interesting. I noticed – so I noticed more the shot aspect of it, not the um, full circle aspect. So I mentioned in my notes that there are a lot of shots where essentially they take you into – a new scene or they transition by doing these really close-ups of assorted things and then coming back out of them. Yeah. Um, And I feel like that is very much the style of this movie. Um, Like the, the filmmaking has a lot of sequences that are, that are very much just kind of like, simple pans and like still shots and things of that sort. Well, to, to that statement you just made, Lynch got into filmmaking and he talks about it himself. Lynch got into filmmaking because he was a painter originally. Oh yeah. And you can see it, especially, I was going to say, especially early on, but no, that's nonsense. You could see it throughout his entire career. Some of his compositions are incredibly painterly. Yeah. Um, and he talks about he would intentionally paint. He calls it bad painting. Like, he doesn't really refer to himself as a brilliant painter. He talks about how he wants to paint things that are... He doesn't use the word ugly, but something that makes the viewer want to bite them. And not to eat it, like to inflict pain upon it. And right. that's that's how he wants to grip people with his art. And he does that by creating what he refers to as bad painting. But that, that, as a visualist, was his way into filmmaking. Okay, and I can definitely see that because there are a lot of sequences, or not even just sequences, but just shots that are just very beautiful. The, everything in the club when she's singing and you have all the people behind him and the way it's lit and, and all the different colors, like it's it could in fact be a painting. And even that scene when uh, Kyle MacLachlan walks in at Kyle MacLachlan uh, walks in at the very end to that room and Gordon is just standing there and the husband is in the chair. Like that to me is, is a, a probably a painting I'd have on my wall just cause there's so much to learn f- just from that one image. Yes. And of course, going back to what I was saying about how it's all so deeply nightmarish. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like uh, Gordon, who is uh, also known as the yellow man, um, having he's been brained essentially and he's still standing upright. Yeah. And you have that incredible this, this pitch black comic moment where Frank shows up at the spoilers for the end of the movie, I suppose, uh, <laughs> which if you haven't seen Blue Velvet, do that first, like watch it and then and then come back. Yeah. Because we're going to spoil all of it. Watch it in parallel to this podcast. The most ineffectual, like badly synced commentary track. Yeah, it'll be great. Is. Um, but so Frank comes in in the well-dressed man disguise and Jeffrey Beaumont has run to the closet to hide, tricking Frank with the radio, saying yeah. like, I'm hiding in the bedroom. 
and Frank is just shooting up the place a little bit, and then he turns, and he just it, something occurs to him. You see the way Dennis Hopper's playing, and it's just like he has a thought, and you're not really sure what his thought is. Then he just turns and casually shoots Gordon, who finally falls over. Right. Can I ask a dumb question? And this is a plot question. Okay. Um, so Gordon was undercover the whole time, right? That's what we're led to believe, is that he was undercover, and then in that last encounter, before uh, Jeff come, Jeff, Jeffrey uh, shows up, it, it seems like he's been found out, and that's why he was brained. There, he hears on the radio um, Sandy's father, the detective, saying like the the raid has already begun. Yeah, right. Like it's it's imp- yes. So uh, crooked police officers are a big thing with Lynch too. Uh, I'm thinking specifically again of of Twin Peaks, a number of characters that work for the law that aren't necessarily on the up and up. Yeah. So I would say yes, it definitely supports that reading. I also wouldn't objectively rule out the possibility that this guy is a little dirty as well. Mm-hmm. Whether or not he was undercover the whole time, like on, on the side of completely lawful good, I also don't assume that uh, unless it's clearly, you know, like unless you're dealing with some of the police officers on Twin Peaks that are clearly like very righteous, good people. And that's demonstrated through their actions. Like right. Gordon's not somebody we get to know all that well. So I would not rule out the possibility that maybe he's a little shady himself. Although of course we don't necessarily uh, explicitly address that right okay um that was i think that was the one thing that i wasn't sure about everything else i was aces on i was like i get all the things um though i did think that at the end uh before frank came back as the well-dressed man um that uh dorothy had set everything up uh and i feel like there were little clues throughout that could point to that with the exception of, um, no, even, even the, like the weird, what, uh, IMDB called rape ceremony. Um, that's, that's what they called it. That scene with, uh, Frank, or I guess maybe rape ritual is what they called it. Uh, because it's how he does his stuff. But, um, even with that, there are slight implications that, uh, Dorothy, could have been essentially setting this up and her 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 boyfriend or her husband was never a part of it because like you never see them until the very end there's that moment where she's in the other room uh when they go to meet ben and she's talking to what you assume is her son but it could just as well be no one sure um so like throughout i was thinking because it's it plays itself the movie plays itself kind of as a noir it's, it's very much pulling from elements of, of noir, absolutely. Which, in noir, like, typically the, the dame uh, is on the other side. Yes, the classic femme fatale right. type. Uh, so I was assuming that she was about to go scot-free. She showed up at his, his place so that uh, she could essentially get taken to the hospital, and then she'd disappear from there, and you'd find out she was behind the whole thing, and she liked the, the ritual. That's why every time she was like, hit me, because that's her thing. Well, okay, so that part, I think you're definitely onto something in as much as, yeah, I think it becomes clear that... Uh, whether as the result of the the pain and the trauma inflicted upon her by Frank and, and quite possibly others throughout her life, it does seem like there is a part of her that enjoys being brutalized. And it's incredibly disturbing, that scene where she finds Jeffrey having, having uh, spied on them mm-hmm. and essentially like forces herself on him and like there's that... Uh, inc- maybe the most uncomfortable oral sex that I certainly can think of in a movie I've seen recently. Yeah. Um, that element is definitely a play that element of, uh, the abused internalizing their abuse in such a way that it becomes a part of them. Yeah. And it's, and that's incredibly real too. And it's all the more disturbing because it's, that's something that, happens right now the rest of your reading of it i am not at all going to sit here and tell you that i 
don't think you could read that into it. What I think is really interesting is most of Lynch's work, I think, supports a number of different interpretations. Mm -hmm. Even though I think what we're being presented with is often a lot more straightforward than people realize, the why behind all of it and some of the greater significance, I think it, it really does. His work lends itself to multiple different interpretations. And what I think is really funny about Lynch is he is notoriously... Uh, not even reticent. He just won't really discuss his movies after he's right. made them. His attitude it seems to be essentially the work speaks for, his, for itself. If you were to approach him and engage him in a dialogue about his work and you asked him specifically about that reading of it, it's entirely possible he'd be like, no, that's wrong. But I've, based on how I understand his responses to many of the questions he gets along that line, I think his answer would be something more like, well, if you read that into it, that's very nice for you. I like the idea of being the only person he's ever told they're wrong to his face. Like he just grabs me by the by the collar, lifts me up. Bullshit! And he's like, You're an idiot. <laughs> and then like headbutts me. Uh, and then he's like, "If this was another time, I'd be doing my last name." And then I'd be like, "That was fucking intense." Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> That's my interpretation oh, of uh, David Lynch. Oh dear. Yeah. I. Ooh, I mean, topical. it'd be a good story. Oh, we're getting. Oh getting, yeah, it's it's in hot, my blood. Some it's, hot, it's, breaking. It's a part of me. Toasty, mm, breaking topical mm. stuff. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of violence, um, I know that Frank is one of your favorite characters. So I love this character not because I you root for him at any point. Frank is Frank Booth as portrayed by Dennis Hopper is horrifying. He's mm -hmm. objectively horrifying, but he's also in a very uh, pitch black way I think Dennis Hopper's performance is also hilarious um, I think it is worth noting that Dennis Hopper had been in rehab for drug and alcohol addiction shortly before he got this movie mm -hmm. and he came out of rehab and he didn't really at that point have much of a career to speak of and of course once he was in Blue Velvet he got Blue Velvet and then he did uh, Blue Velvet I think then he did Hoosiers and then he did River's Edge like back to back to back yeah. but I, I believe Blue Velvet was the first of the three and he took it because even though I think his reps were like this who's gonna see this is the really bizarre part and like why would you why would you do we're trying to rebuild you why would you do this essentially and i think dennis hopper's philosophy was was i really like this part and i think even if it doesn't do blockbuster business everyone in hollywood is going to see this movie right um and he apparently approached david lynch at a certain point like it sounds like he actually lobbied hard to get this part he was he was basically like I am Frank Booth. Mm -hmm. And there was apparently this this general feeling of, okay, well, that's that's great for the movie. If that's the case, maybe we don't necessarily want to have lunch with you, but that's that's fantastic. And so he, yeah, he brought a lot to it. He talked about, there's a, there's a documentary uh, on, it's like an hour and 10 minutes that's on the Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. And Dennis Hopper's talking about how he had gotten so used to using drugs and alcohol as essentially acting devices. So mm -hmm. he was very nervous about, especially playing a character like this, where he's so drug and booze addled at all times. And that's the source of so much of this, this fire that propels him. But he talks about going back to basically basic Strasbourg and how that was a lot more useful than using the dreads it turns out it works a lot better if you're sober while you're uh, applying your trade go um, figure he, yeah really but then he also apparently was the one who came up with the idea of using the amyl nitrate i yes. think in the script it was helium. helium yeah yeah okay so in the script it was helium and helium doesn't really mess with your mind it doesn't really get you high it just makes your voice sound super funny mm -hmm. so Dennis Hopper was the one who said, well, what if we do amyl nitrate? And he tells the story and apparently David Lynch was like, what's that? And he tells David Lynch about what amyl nitrate is, about how it completely like shifts and disorients your brain for a few minutes at a time. It's usually used in a, in a as a sexual device, essentially. And it makes a ton of sense for that character. Right. The, amyl nitrate would probably be Frank Booth's drug of choice. Although Dennis Hopper did add, he thought about it in hindsight and he comments on it, it's like, and then I really thought about how weird David Lynch is. And I thought about how 
essentially maybe we should have gone with the helium because if if he's doing all of the exact same things that you see in the movie but every so often he's hitting helium and his voice goes up here like that would have been quite a character as well right yeah it would have been almost as if instead of dennis hopper it was the villain from uh who framed roger rabbit Judge Doom? Yes. <laughs> yes, at the end when he... The, spoilers for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, <laughs> when uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd, his eye was like, Remember me, Eddie, when I killed your brother? That whole fu- that thing. Right. And his eyes like pop out, get all spirally and cartoony. Right. That'd be great. So it would have been that just in live... Or maybe they would have added in all the cartoony stuff. Why not? I mean, it, it feels like... I feel like it wouldn't have been that out of place in this movie. Like... He would have just shown up, and that's just how we see it, because he's such a big character. And they're like, oh, man, didn't you see those eyes? And everyone's like, no, I didn't see it. And it's like this crazy reoccurring thing only in the eyes of Jeffrey. I just rewrote this movie. I I would watch your Hanna-Barbera remix of Blue Velvet in a heartbeat. (laughs) Uh well uh I'll start getting work uh, start getting to work on the the remake dude it'll be d- d- don't even remake it just get yourself a film print of it get yourself like the whole movie on film and then okay. sit there frame by frame and draw in the animation ooh yeah that sounds a like a so, lot of time sounds very time consuming yes. for uh, a potential lawsuit yes yes uh though it's worth it. You know? Well, people will be talking about it. They would be. Like, you hear about that guy who ruined Blue Velvet and got sued? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's me. We're in jail right now. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I'm famous. Uh, jail famous. <laughs> oh, dear. What is, uh, the, what is the tattoo that you get for doodling over somebody's film print in jail? I imagine it being like one of those film roles, you know, but with like googly eyes. Okay. But the googly eyes aren't, aren't like tattooed on. I have to like put them on every day. Like I just glue them onto the, the film roll on my shoulder. Okay. So it's like actual googly eyes on the, okay. Where do you get the googly eyes in prison? I, uh, you got to connect them in in someone's butt. Yeah. You got to connect somewhere, you know? Uh, and then every day I walk up to them and go, my eyes on your butt. And they go, that's the code word. And they hand it to me and I have to wipe them off. Nice. Thank you. All right. Yeah. I see you have, I see you have 10 of these Uh, with two eyes each. Yes, of course. I have a very, very good network. I have another question about how you keep getting these film canisters full of full reels and reels of film of popular works in prison. It's a real lack security in this prison. Yeah. Well, technically they just swallow the film uh, and then we re-roll it from the other side. I see. Yeah. So you basically you have to usher them in under cover of darkness. You, I guess you have to pay off a guard, right? Yes. So a guard can like hang out outside the cell while you essentially pull uh, full reels of film out of somebody. Yeah. I mean, we don't use the the tins. We just use the toilet paper rolls. Okay. So we just do it that. Just way. roll it up that so way. Just roll, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be precise. you got to be real real careful with that. I mean, you must really have a system in place to not damage the the film or maybe like all of the blotches that inevitably will appear uh, frame to frame are part of the appeal yeah of course it's like film grain except it's like so you're doing you're doing what rodriguez and tarantino did basically with grindhouse yeah you're just you're just doing it in a very avant-garde fashion totally Low budget. it's all about the art yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> oh geez um he's <laughs> yeah so i <laughs> I can't even. I, I I just can't. I'm gone. That's a I'm really. That's a hard digression. <laughs> I think. Um. So I I will really. Here's another thing. Not 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 a thing that I didn't get, but a thing that was interesting to me, and it was the Mike subplot. Um. Mike was uh, Sandy's boyfriend. Yes. Who was only mentioned in name for a very long time. Um, and then you see him one time on a fence and he's sad. And then you see him just before all the like shit goes down. And it just, it, it struck me as a weird story beat, uh, that like she, they could have just had Sandy be single. 
Um, yes. So I, I agree in as much as I feel like you could on some level lose Mike as a character and not, not lose too much of the overall impact of the movie. Yeah. But what I do appreciate about it, and I hadn't really thought, I hadn't really thought too much about it. I just accepted its presence. But if I had to argue for it, I think what I would say is what you see in this movie is two kids. I mean, they're very, and they were young when they were cast. I mean, Laura Dern was cast when she was 18 for this movie. And she had had credits before this, but she was cast at at 18 years old. They're kids, right? And so uh, these kids getting a little bit too involved in this mystery because they think it's like cool and sexy and like we want to get to the bottom of whatever's going on, way out of their element, they end up falling away from their normal safe world and mm-hmm. into this world of incredible pitch darkness and and quite possibly capital e evil i think mike is there to remind you that oh sandy's got a normal a totally normal she goes to high school she's got a boyfriend like she's got a life yeah too that that she is being pulled away from in a way by jeffrey and i think jeffrey it's interesting that jeffrey is he's your protagonist he's as much as there is a hero of this story, I suppose you could argue that it's Jeffrey, but Jeffrey is, uh, there's a lot of moral ambiguity to that character as well. And by continuing to follow this uh, relentlessly, he is in effect pulling Sandy away from her life. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, if I had to argue for the presence of Mike as a character in this movie, I think it's, it's to emphasize that it's to emphasize that like we, uh, she already, like she already has a boyfriend and she's so fixated now on, Jeffrey and what they're getting involved in and Jeffrey's allowing it and allowing her to be pulled closer to him and by extension further into this incredibly dangerous world. Got it. I mean, and I don't, I don't need real, a real justification for him being there. I think I just mostly felt bad for him. Oh, totally. Um, Cause he's, he's, he seemed like a nice guy. Like if you've seen stranger things, he seemed like the, uh, tall-haired kid from that Steve something or other. Steve, Steve something or other. something or other. Um, and so I, part of me expected them, like part of me expected him to just always be there. Mike to always be there. And then her to go back to Mike. And then somehow, some way, Jeffrey, I don't know, not ends up with uh, Dorothy, but something in that because there's like a weird love triangle between dorothy jeffrey and uh sandy i would say i would say in as much as dorothy can actively participate in a love triangle with anybody i would say then there would be two love triangles in this movie one is the one you described and then the other one would be dorothy jeffrey and frank right what i think is really interesting sidebar uh, yeah talking about frank again both dennis hopper and david lynch talk about the character of frank as you know of course uh, the best villains don't think of themselves as villains so what is driving say a character like frank booth who is so uh brazenly monstrous what is the justification for his behavior in his own mind yeah and they both talk about how they see Frank as somebody who is truly, genuinely, deeply, powerfully in love, just just does not handle or express it very well. And it's all about control, and it's all about th- these threats of violence, essentially, to get what he wants, because he is not capable of expressing love in a more constructive, healthy, less abusive way. Right. Interesting. I mean, that that read of it, kind of it, it opens up a, another conversation about how people who are into different things have to struggle to find exact like find ways to fulfill that like i mean now we there's like a there is and i guess maybe now less of a stigma around like fetishes and and things like that um i'm moving my hands in a, a weird way like what someone with a fetish would do? I don't know. Well, it almost looks like you're doing a, like a kettlebell exercise. Yeah. So I have a kettlebell fetish. Um, but like, so it, it anyway, it, it's, it leads to a different conversation about people who are forced to, exp- uh, who aren't allowed to express their love in the way that they want to um, and how that affects them. So if, if you wanted to start digging into Frank's character, you could imagine that like maybe he liked it rough at some point. Um, 
and then he could never find a, a person to take that um when that, even like, the, level and right, it just escalated right I and mean, even the uh some of the stuff that frank does i, I believe this is part of the uh, rape ritual scene that you're referring to yes where he's huffing the amyl nitrate and he keeps repeating stuff like baby wants to fuck and he's like uh, cutting off the 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 blue velvet cloth and like sniffing it and rubbing it on himself yeah it's 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 quite a bit, but that that much of it is more or less harmless. I mean, I'm sure that much amyl nitrate can't be good for you, right. but at least it's. I mean, self harm is is also not great. But he's not inflicting harm on others until we get to the the direct threats of violence and the direct violent actions where he starts actually doing what he does. Right. Um, but yeah, it's totally possible that like exactly what you're saying, like he has proclivities some of which are maybe odd maybe a bit unique but he just needs an outlet that he needs but like without an outlet without a way to process that uh it just it festers and it builds and and like this dude's not definitely not right in the head yeah so all of that like it it, i could see how it would lead some of this this fire in him to come out in a very destructive negative way right um there's a thing that frank says which is he did he's a big fan of paps um yes when uh there's a thing a couple of a couple of moments where they reference uh heineken and it's the first time that uh jeffrey and sandy go out together yes he's like uh man i like heineken and he says that do you like heineken and she says you know, I don't think I've ever really had Heineken. My dad has Bud. And in that moment, I really, I, I don't think I ever really paid attention to it until this time rewatching it. Kyle MacLachlan has a performance moment where I really like where she talks about how her dad gets Budweiser and he goes, King of the Beers. And he says it like he's resigned himself. So like, oh, this is like, we don't have this in common. I was really <laughs> hoping that we'd connect over this Heineken, but ugh, King of the Beers. How am I going to compete with that? King of the Beers. It's true. Um, but then, of course, when Frank essentially abducts Jeffrey and takes him with his buddies on a joyride. Sidebar, his, among his buddies are Brad Dourif, who, big career, uh, Cuckoo's Nest, he's uh, Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, he's Doc Cochran on Deadwood, he's the voice of Chucky, uh, he's, yeah. he's, he's one of the guys, and then another one of the guys playing a character named Paul is Jack Nance, who is a, a good friend for many, many years and frequent collaborator of David Lynch. He was the lead in Eraserhead. He shows up in Lost Highway. He played Pete on Twin Peaks. But so he, uh, Jeffrey's abducted, taken against his will to a, I believe the first place they go is is Ben's place, played yeah. by uh, Dean Stockwell, who also massive career. Uh, a lot of people, I think closer to our age, know him probably from like Battlestar Galactica yeah. where he's Cavill. But as they're, as they're entering, right? Like Frank asks Jeffrey, you know, what beer do you like? And he's under his breath says Heineken. And Frank yells at him. He's like, Heineken, fuck that shit. Paps blue ribbon. Is so what was this movie sponsored by Heineken? I mean, though I will say that like, and I brought it up to, to, more because kind of what you're talking about in that just the idea of these little things specificity makes character moments yes and and one thing too you'll see the more of lynch's movies i force you to watch <laughs> all of this so detail oriented and so every scene is so incredibly specific there are, and not just in the character interactions but down to set details different production design choices all yeah. incredibly detailed and specific which is crazy because it's the fact that these characters, even though pushing forth a narrative, have opinions on like what beer they like is and, a really interesting. And there's that moment when uh, when Jeffrey's peeing and he's like Heineken. Yep. Um, I thought those were really, I guess, not not juicy, but very like dense character moments. And I also wonder too. Does Frank really prefer Pabst Blue Ribbon so strongly that he takes the suggestion that another beer is preferred as a grievous personal offense? Or was he going to respond like that no matter what Jeffrey said? I don't know. Maybe that was his one chance to like <laughs> connect. If Jeffrey had said, I like Pabst Blue Ribbon, he would have been like, you're not so bad, boy. But then I also wonder, I also wonder too, it's a little bit like 
the the moment that I referenced before, the scene where there's a disconnect on beer between, uh, I guess, not Sandy herself, but I guess Sandy's dad and Jeffrey. And Jeffrey's response to it is essentially like, oh, okay, well, that's that's fine. And Frank's <laughs> response is to literally scream profanities into his face. Yeah. And it w- met with almost the same like the same crossroad in the conversation. I think the fact that it's that similar and their reactions diverge so aggressively yeah. is amusing. That's true. Um, circling back to that scene in, in Ben's apartment, it was, I think this was one of my favorite scenes when Ben just starts like singing. Where he's, he's lip syncing to the Roy Orbison song. Right. Um, and it, it almost felt... Um, it almost felt like a different movie at that moment, which I thought was really interesting. Like it, it kind of going back to what you were saying about it feeling like jumping into a dream. Yes. If anything in the movie felt that way, it was this sequence where they kind of just go out of their Like things are happening in the movie and then all of a sudden it stops and we get one of those uh, Lynch-esque, picturesque, Lynch-esque, picturesque frames Yes. Um, where he's... Just he's standing there. Everyone's in their their like poses, and then we just get this small sequence of him. What I assume this character does like on a regular basis. He loves singing this song. What I think is really funny is like he's obviously doing a performance. Ben is, but at the same time, Frank is standing off to the side, and he's also mouthing the words to this Roy Orbison song too. And I look clearly. It's not really explored, but clearly this whole like group of incredibly bizarre, violent, depraved men must be big Roy Orbison fans because not only do they know this song but they refer to their drugs they keep using the phrase the candy colored clown they call the Sandman Mm -hmm. which is the first line of the song and like obviously I know Lynch is an Orbison fan because he's used Orbison songs not just here but also there's Rebecca Del Rio there's this uh, phenomenal sequence in Mulholland Drive where she does a Spanish language acapella version of Roy Orbison's crying yeah Um, so obviously he's a fan but I love that like Frank Booth is low-key a Roy Orbison fan, which I I enjoy. Like, they have it after they leave. They have it playing again in the car in the next scene. Like, clearly, they like like their Orbison. I like that he's like, I think this would be a good beating up song. Uh, (laughs) Everyone needs a soundtrack to kick some butt. And it's got to be some Ray Orbison. Why Why not, right? Um, But also, too, what you're talking about, about it feeling incredibly dreamlike. I like this blurring of, of... realities that we get because obviously we it's it's the music is diegetic it's in the scene i mean frank cuts the song off by turning off the stereo that it's playing from so it's not like this music is coming from some ethereal disconnected place but once the song starts and dean stockwell starts lip-syncing to it he is so into it and it does seem it's so comfortable so familiar for him that if you ha- if you weren't familiar with the Roy Orbison recording, you would be forgiven for thinking we're just this is this is reality. This is what's happening. Yeah. So we're blending the the real and the not surreal. And the, well, the, the effect I was going to say is incredibly surreal. The way Got we're it. blending reality with no- elements of non-reality. Ah, yes. Um, I really like Sandy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, she was. She was adorable. I, I didn't know that Laura Dern, Laura Dern was going to be in this movie. Yes. And so when I saw her, I was like, ah, is, that, is that Ellie? Um, and she, I feel like she played it really well. Like she was very innocent. And at the same time, uh, you got a sense of wonder from her, which I thought was really p- balanced well. Yes. I mean, I think I think Laura Dern did a phenomenal job. And like I said, she had credits before and her parents are actors. I mean, her parents are Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd. Uh, She had credits before that. I think I want to say there were a good six or seven credits before Blue Velvet. But unless I'm very much mistaken, Blue Velvet was the movie that made people go, oh, Laura Dern. Hmm." Mm. And of course, as I mentioned uh, near the beginning of our conversation, this was the first of several Lynch-Dern collaborations uh, uh, after and it, what I think is really interesting too, you talk about how you really liked the characterization of Sandy and the way that Laura Dern played it. Every time she and David Lynch work together, I think she, she, of course, hits the bullseye just as effectively every time. But all of the characters that she's playing are so completely different from the one before. Uh, I mean, at some point, I'll make you watch Wild at Heart, and Lula's about. 
as far removed from Sandy as it gets. I think even though Inland Empire is a bit of a tough sit at times, Laura Dern's work in that is spectacular. And now, of course, on Twin Peaks, she is once again excellent. But all of the characters that she plays for Lynch are so, so completely different from all of the other characters that she has played for Lynch. Okay. Um, I will have to see more of what she's done. Um, I especially liked that scene where she's watching Dorothy all over Jeffrey and she's reacting the whole time. That scene after Dorothy has been walking the street naked, which apparently is something that happened to David Lynch and I believe his brother when they were children. Oh, really? They were, they were out playing and they saw a naked woman wandering through the street and their reaction uh, in far removed from a, ooh, a naked lady, ha ha. No, they were apparently very affected by it and they started to cry. Yeah. And this was something that David Lynch, just a memory that he held onto. And, and it's one of, like I said, there are a few, certainly a few uh, autobiographical elements to the movie, though certainly it's not a, it's not a biopic right. by any stretch, but a few elements that are pulled from David Lynch's life and experience. And that is one of them. And of course there's that line that Isabella Rossellini has in that, in that scene where it's like he put his disease in me, which is just such a like a viscerally uncomfortable way to phrase that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, though it like it gets it across that like she she is in some way like infatuated with this boy. And so like even if the disease wasn't his man seed, which I'm assuming that's what that was, um, it's also just the, he he implant he implanted feelings inside of her. He, she's she's got a new disease, and it's the Jeffrey disease. The Jeffrey disease. Oh yeah. Meow meow. He 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 struck her with his bow, man. Thank you. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yep, that that pun was the pinnacle of this podcast. I'm glad you only had to wait like 40-something minutes to to get to it. Glad I was, that was to- totally worth it. Yep, I was I was had it in my I pocket. Do not was, regret any part of this. No? Nope. As you shouldn't. <laughs> Best joke of the night. I think we should just end there. No more talk. Uh, if you want, I can do it again. Uh, I'm good. Um, uh, I do I do want to talk about, though, because we, we really haven't talked too much about Isabella Rossellini, who prior to Blue Velvet was not really an actress. I think she had done one movie here in the States, but before that she had she had found success as a model. Uh, she too has uh, some noteworthy parents. Uh, she is the daughter, of course, of director Roberto Rossellini and actress Ingrid Bergman. And this was for her as well, like a very, uh, it was it was a big step towards her building a career as an actress. Uh, and I think her performance is so incredibly bold. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, she and uh, David Lynch, she was married to Martin Scorsese for a little bit before this. But in 86, when the movie came out, she and David Lynch started dating and they were an item for, for a while. Oh, really? Yeah, for like, I want to say five, five to seven years Maybe. I forget exactly how long. Um, but, but a little bit for like a minute. Yeah. Audience, Google it. Yeah. You, yeah. Got, you, got, you got the internet. It's true. You're I, listening to the show. You must have the internet. Don't I would assume so. Unless it's been downloaded and then they're in a like a cave or something. Oh. Wi-Fi-less cave. Or on a plane, maybe. I like... I like you get Wi-Fi on planes. I do like the, the visual of somebody downloading our, our shows, maybe like four of them, and then just going off into the wilderness. That'd be dope. Just sitting in a cave, hunting, listening to our bullshit. I mean, we're good company. I I I I think we're great company. If I weren't me, I would want to spend time with me in the wilderness, uh, listening to all my dumb jokes. You know, I'd probably be sharpening my arrows for my bow, man. Yikes. <laughs> Um, okay, what else though? I wanna I wanna go back to like what what other scenes, elements, lines, interactions, like what st- what else stuck out to you? Things that we haven't hit. 
I mean, I feel like we hit most of the the big things. Uh, I did like the that's my pin. Um, I did like the the way that it ended with the Robin having the basically the the I guess the beetle in its mouth. Um, this because, sim- yeah, go on. Oh yeah, because we get earlier in the the when his dad passes out. Um, they go into the underbelly and you see all these violent grubs or whatever like these you ants call essentially them. going at right at each other or going at the ground. Yeah. And then at the end, you know, this Robin who is the symbol of their dreams has this uh beetle in its clutches in, in terms of they've nabbed uh the part of the underbelly of this town yes and and two you're hitting on two themes that are uh, especially from from blue velvet forward big recurring thematic motifs within lynch's work one of which being uh, again you see it you see it most prominently outside of blue velvet you see it most prominently of course in twin peaks the idea of this uh, small idyllic town where everything is exact, this beautiful portrait of Americana on the surface, and just underneath the surface is something incredibly dark and sinister and corruptive and potentially destructive. Mm-hmm. That's one. The other one is, of course, uh, you referenced this this uh, Robin being the symbol of their dreams. The idea that Sandy had a dream that, though she didn't know it at the time, turned out to be prophetic turned out to be more of a vision than a dream yeah that's something that continues to pop up in lynch's work as well and i'm thinking specifically of twin peaks again and also uh in a different way maholland drive as well okay um is so is the the like obscure i I want i don't want to call it obscure storytelling but, like, is the non-conventional storytelling what appeals to you most? I mean, I know that, like, as someone, for me, as someone who um, is always consuming media, um, it gets harder and harder to enjoy things because I always kind of know where they're going. For sure. But when I find a director or a writer or a piece of content that I can consume and I can actually follow it follow this story from beginning to end and really feel that surprise um it's invigorating and i imagine that is what makes david lynch's stuff so appealing is that you never know exactly where it's going but you're you're in for the ride yes uh, absolutely and for me it it really is what you were saying it's a matter of nothing nothing else to me feels like Lynch. There, don't get me wrong. There are countless imitators. There are any number of filmmakers that have tried to, if not overtly ape Lynch's style, certainly go for something similar. And it it feels like imitation Lynch. It feels like imitation Lynch every single time. Yeah. Nothing else to me feels like a David Lynch story. And I'm talking about not just the content of the story, but also like what I keep coming back to is how it all feels so incredibly dreamlike. But I also feel like all of his characters are very prominently sharply drawn. I feel like all of his sequences are incredibly impactful. Uh, But also tone and mood are, are really big prominent priorities for him as a storyteller in a way that I feel like you don't, see that much especially now like in 2017 in big american movies you don't see that a whole lot right and i love now of course it's entirely subjective it's very much your mileage may vary but i love the way his movies feel even when they are uh, uncomfortable and terrifying i really it feels like I, it feels like a dream i don't know anybody else who so consistently captures what I understand dreams to feel like. Now, not all of my dreams are as disturbing as some of what David Lynch depicts, but it really is. It's it's dream logic more than it is real world logic. Interesting. And that's something that, again, I feel like I don't, I, there's nowhere else for me to go to for that. Yeah. I, I, I think I've said this in a tweet before, but I actually, I really like hearing, about things that you're passionate about. Um, about me personally? Yes. You. Oh, thanks. Um, this is the moment where I gush about Lex Michael. Do it, man. Um, gush. Give me that gushy <laughs> wash. Bathe um, me in validation. I just, it, it's because I, 
it comes from a really genuine place and you can tell that you really like the the content and so like you talking about david lynch and the way that you describe it uh really makes me want to dive in more and i i and that's partially why we do this um and i hope that like our audience feels that way as well um because that's that's what i feel is the best part of sharing stuff that you enjoy is that like your like love is infectious 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 um it's it's like a disease that we can put in you (laughs) yeah yikes um so (laughs) i'm gonna start wrapping us up um so i will and i will do so by saying that i would definitely recommend this um, and now don't if you're listening and you've never seen a David Lynch movie before and this is your first time with Lynch's work and you find yourself um, either turned off by elements of it, which I, I understand it can be very jarring if you're not prepared for the story you're being told and the way it's being told to you. Give yourself time to absorb it, because like I remember a uh, long time ago, my friends got into David Lynch before I did and I watched his stuff and I didn't think it was it was. Uh, bad or incompetent by any stretch but I found when I first encountered David Lynch very similarly to when I first encountered uh, Tom Waits who we've talked about on this show before yeah I found it a little bit impenetrable so I do completely get it but I would advise anyone who is potentially interested in Lynch's work give yourself a, a chance to overcome that feeling of I don't know how to access this yeah. because you may discover now you may not but you may discover like I did oh this is the, he is one of my fa- very favorite storytellers um, and I do think one thing that I wanted to address a little bit earlier is very brief but one point that I think is really cool is you don't first of all you don't get a movie like Blue Velvet or much of Lynch's work if it gets for example studio noted to death it'll lose that that flavor you uh, lose that uniqueness david lynch was able to make a deal on blue velvet with the de Laurentiis company wherein he would get full artistic control and final cut in exchange for effectively slashing his salary and bringing it in uh for six million dollars that was the entire apparently the entire budget like a lot of the actors were so passionate about the material and were really eager to work with him and worked apparently for all of them barely above scale oh really which is but it's and you see you see what results from uh the word visionary gets thrown around so much that it's more or less lost all meaning so much so that i almost feel silly using it but when you let a visionary storyteller like a david lynch go you know what i mean and and tell his story that's the only way you get a movie like this and it's the only way frankly you get like my mind is blown every single week right now when I see a new episode of Twin Peaks that that Showtime gave David Lynch and Mark Frost the freedom, the leeway to do everything that they're doing. There are a number. I keep saying to anybody who I engage uh, in conversation about it, it feels like such a gift to have more Twin Peaks now. Not just because I am so deeply enamored of that show and have been for uh, a decade but also because it's 18 hours of David Lynch. It's 18 hours of material from one of my very favorite storytellers that feels so unlike anything else that there is. Uh, Yeah, I don't, I mean, I feel like I could keep going, you know what I mean? But it's, uh, that's what it comes down to for me is nothing else makes me feel the way his stories make me feel. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I feel like if I didn't have it, I would be looking for it. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? No, I get that completely. Um, uh, yes. I like, I'm kind of that way with certain music types. So like I'll hear a song and I'll be like, I need more of this, but it's very hard to find because it's, it's a mix of genres and things of that sort. So I definitely get that feeling. Um, and I am sure that everyone at home also gets that feeling and they should tell us about it on twitter make sure to follow us uh on twitter at missing outcast that's m-i-s-s-i-n-g-c-a-s-t um also if you're listening to this make sure that you go onto itunes and uh hit that thumbs nope not thumbs up uh make sure you go onto itunes i also think you spelled it missing cast 
Unless I missed the OUT. Nope. Did I miss the OUT? You, you, you got it. You, I, I'm, all right, I'm going home now. <laughs> um, I'll see you guys later. Char has been hitting that, that Paps Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Paps Blue Ribbon! Um, God damn it. Uh, anyway, follow us on Twitter <laughs> at... Missing Outcast, M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T, Missing Outcast on Twitter. And make sure to leave us a uh, rating, leave us some comments. It helps us get to the top of the charts on iTunes and helps other people like yourself or unlike yourself find us. And it helps us build our brand and it helps us make more content like this for you because we do it for you and we do it for us but mostly for you um and also it just really helps us feel good as people who doesn't enjoy a good pat on the back every so often it's true um also if you just want to chat with us about random things you can hit us up on our personal twitters uh mine is at tari j it's t-a-r-i-j-a-y and i am at the lex michael on every social media platform that i have which is most of them? Yeah, I would imagine so. With most of them. Yeah. All the social... Get them on Friendster. Get them on uh, Kick. Kick. Uh, get that MySpace going. Yeah, MySpace. Snapchat. Um, uh, what else is dead? But still, follow us on Twitter. Thanks. Bye. It's done. We're done. It's the end. We're all done. Oh, uh, can I go home now? Nope. You still. You still. Can I see my husband still and son? Chained. Can I see my husband and son, please? No. Do I have to sing Let's... for you? Yes. I'll sing Blue Velvet. Do it. I'll do it. Cause baby wants to fuck. <laughs>